Amen. Thanks, Josh and the team. And Jacob, thank Jacob for getting up here and Brett and the whole team. Pretty cool looking little bandana he's got hanging off his base. That's pretty fun. All right. Hey, so um, I'm glad you're here. I hope you had a great fourth. A couple things uh, that I want you to know about. And just to remind you, I'll be reminding you for a couple weeks. And uh, this, this stuff will show up in just a minute. Hey, look at that. There it is. And so uh, next week, not next week, a few weeks, August 23rd, mark it down. Uh, worship in the park. Uh, we'll be hanging out at Miller Park. Come early. Worship, uh, you know, church will do a thing in the amphitheater over there about 630 but if you come early, we'll have food trucks, and uh, you can eat um, some tasty food, uh, socially distanced, and all that good stuff. So hopefully, uh, being outside, it'll be a comfortable place for us to gather, and you'll get to maybe see some people you haven't seen in a while. Um, and so come out, hang out early, 4 o'clock, and then we'll do church at 630. That's the 23rd of August, coming up soon. The very next week uh, is, after that, August 30th, our 2020 annual meeting. And so this will be uh, really something that should have happened in May, but uh, this will give you a glimpse of where we've been and where we're headed. If you're a member, a regular attender, this is pretty important because you want to find out a little bit about uh, kind of the stuff behind the scenes here at the church. If you're wondering, is this a church we want to be a part of? That's a great place to get a glimpse. You can meet our leadership team and get to know some people that are uh, a part of the fabric and the, uh, the structure of our church. So we would love for you to be a part of that. Okay. Did you have a good fourth? Did you have a good fourth holiday? Yeah, did you? If you're online, we hope you had a good fourth. Did you see some fireworks? Anybody see any fireworks? Anybody set off any fireworks? We have a former sheriff in the room. I don't know if you want to raise your hand on that. Steve Johnson, not naming names, but Shane, he's up here if you want to get him after. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I thought they were illegal for the moment, but apparently not. Um, so I guess they're happening no matter what. But it reminds us, as we got near this holiday, we thought about Independence Day. And I don't know about you, but I've been reflective and thinking about these things uh, as we look at the things that are happening in our country and we're wondering and we're curious and maybe we feel tension or, or maybe uh, some dis-ease about all those things that are occurring. It made me really want to think hard about history and all the things that are uh, unfolding, not now, but back when our country was, was born, the, the birth of it. And so, you know, I've been reading a little bit about the Revolutionary War. And uh, last night we watched Hamilton. How many of you have seen Hamilton? Uh, maybe if you haven't, it's, it's I mean, history is always better when they wrap it. So um, <laughs> it's worth maybe taking some time to watch. Uh, and as you watch things unfold, I, I had forgotten so many details about the, the Boston Tea Party and the, the protests that occurred there and what they were even protesting I had forgotten about the, the launch of the Revolutionary War and the, the difficulty, in, even in the middle of fighting it. I mean, I, if, if you've not read an account about what happened at Valley Forge in a while, it'd be worth your time to, to just read through it. Um, I, I don't even like to camp. We, we bought a camper because I don't like to camp. So I don't sleep on the ground. I want air conditioning. And I think about what they went through at Valley Forge, and I think if there were people like me there, we wouldn't even have a country the people that gave and sacrificed and were committed to the ideal of an independence. It's absolutely incredible. And it, of course, is meaningful to us. Our son uh, serves in the uh, military as a reservist. He's a flight nurse. And we got word just about a week and a half ago that he will deploy in September over to Germany to help with their COVID response. And and so we're very thoughtful and reflective about all these things and because the history matters. And the reason history matters 
is because if you understand what came before you, then you have some grasp, some understanding of, of what even could be happening now. Context is everything. And so when we give you context and we give you a verse like we, start, we ended with last week, Ezra, is this little, little book in the Old Testament. My guess is most of you have never read the whole thing. Um, but it begins, the very beginning of this account starts like this. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, don't know him, don't know much about Persia, ancient country maybe, but then it says this, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to, and he goes on to explain, allow some people who were Jewish by heritage, by religion, by birth, to go all the way back home. They're in a northern country. They're there because they were conquered and taken, not because they chose to visit and live there like we do today. And when this occurred, they lived there for about 50 years until God worked through this man named Cyrus, a king. Now, when they were taken, it was by a man named Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon. By the time this happens, 50 years later, 50 years later, it's a different king, different country, times change, powers change, empires rise and empires fall. And God uses this man named Cyrus to send God's people back home. We're in this series just for a few weeks to talk about what it means to come home. And there's some lessons for each of us in all of these stories. Now, when this story begins to unfold in the Old Testament, here's your one minute of context. God calls Abraham, going to make him a nation. God begins to build a nation and all of a sudden, they find themselves being enslaved by the Egyptians. Moses leads them out of slavery. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They become a nation, strong nation, but they become disobedient and they follow wayward paths. God conquers them again. And in this conquering, God sends this king, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and leads them into a place of exile. Some stay, some go, some are dispersed. When we pick up our story in the book of Ezra, what's happening is God is sending his people back. Now, what you might miss, but I want you to pay close attention to is just this one phrase that's in yellow. In order to fulfill, it's just the very first verse, the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. If you've been here for a few weeks, then you know that Jeremiah was a prophet. And decades before this happened, God raised up Jeremiah to tell what was gonna happen in the future. And Jeremiah said, Israel, if you don't get your act together, Judah, if you don't shape up, then God's going to send a king from the north and he's going to conquer you and you're going to be destroyed. Get your act together and take care of business. And I'll have you know that Jeremiah predicted this downfall, but he also predicted another piece of this future. And it was this, that God would restore them and bring them back home. Now, when you read this, you might miss one of the most obvious questions, and I think probably the most important question to ask. Why would God raise up a man like Jeremiah that we would call prophet? Why would God do that? Why would he raise up somebody, no position, no authority, no real role to play in the life of Israel except to be chosen by God to tell the truth and tell the future? Why would God bring people like Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Jonah? Why would he raise them up to be this role of prophet to tell what's going to happen in the future? Why would he want us to see this and know it? If you don't catch anything today, catch this. 
Because we're in a season in our country, we're in this time when the future feels terribly uncertain. And when we say future, we don't mean just a decade from now or five years from now, but maybe even next month or the fall. What's it going to look like? How's it going to play out? How do we get good information about what is actually occurring? How do we even know what the future will bring? Well, this was the whole role of a prophet was to predict the future. And when you read Ezra 1.1, what ought to stir deep inside of you is this idea that the history in Ezra moves our hearts toward what? Toward hope. Hope's in short supply these days. Hope about what is to come, what could be around the corner. But when you read Ezra 1.1, what ought to stir deep within you is this glimmer of hope that maybe could flame into a full bonfire, a bonfire of hope in the promises of God. Jeremiah says decades before it happens, God's going to punish you, get it together, and they don't. But then Jeremiah says decades before it happens, God's not done with you yet. He's going to fulfill some promises. He's going to bring you back home. He's going to restore you. He's going to make you into a great nation. This is what Jeremiah promises. But all through Scripture, promise after promise, God gives, not about what would happen just to ancient Israel, but what would happen with me and with you over and over again. When you see in Ezra that God is checking the box of one of his promises, it ought to remind you that there are promises in here yet to be fulfilled that God is still working on even when it feels like things aren't moving in a good direction, even when you can't sleep at night or you have this unease, this anxiety or fear or uncertainty about what's to come, God's promises are yet to be fulfilled. And the hope that stirs when the people of Israel are led back into their homeland at the hands of a a pagan king, well, it ought to remind you that God will accomplish his purposes. Nothing will get in his way. Nothing will thwart his direction and his ability to see history fully completed and reconciled. And so when the scriptures say, well, indeed, God reconciles all things to himself. I see all kinds of things that aren't reconciled, don't you? I see all kinds of messes everywhere. That means God is still working. He's not done may not seem like it, but he is. When it says in the scriptures that he is making all things new, I just have to look in the mirror and think, I see some things that aren't new. (laughs) Not new at all. It means that God is not done. He's still working. He's accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. When it says in the book of Acts chapter 3 that God is in the business of bringing Jesus back so that he can restore all things. It's the promise of God. So then we look to God's reliability. What promises has he made and kept? And when we see promises made and kept, then it brings peace. And it takes our anxiety and it moves it aside. And we begin to believe and trust that God is a good God, that he's still at work, that he is doing incredible things, even when it feels like the world might be coming apart. In fact, this is the essence of hope. Hebrews 11.1 says very clearly, now faith, what I believe, is confidence 
and what we hope for and yet do not, what? We don't see it. Well, if it was happening before you, you wouldn't even need faith, would you? Come on. Hope exists because you can see something that isn't happening yet. This is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. Believing and knowing that God is at work. So tell me, are the headlines directing your perspective? Are the arguments around you driving your anxiety? Do you look at the fall or maybe even the spring and wonder, will some things get better and some things get worse? Absolutely, this is all true. But when you read Ezra 1.1, Jeremiah said it, God brought it to fruition. May our hearts be moved toward hope and the promises of who he is and what he will accomplish. This book, Ezra, it really belongs with another book in scripture, two books together, Ezra and Nehemiah. In the ancient scriptures, really until recent years, these were one volume. They told one story of three different leaders. Only in our recent edition of scriptures have they been moved into two books. And when I say recent, I'm talking about the whole of history, 500 years or so ago. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of three people, three leaders. And if you find yourself in any circumstance where you're leading, whether you're leading yourself, managing yourself, whether you're leading other people and serving a group of folks that you manage in a company or a business or some sort of what we might call secular setting that's not really focused or founded on who Jesus is, or you're just trying to lead your kids down a path, regardless, what these three leaders learn through this entire process is going to be so important for you. If you ever try to move something from here to there, if you ever have tried in any, any way, shape, or form to take something where it is and make it, well, whenever we touch something or put our hands on it or try to create, we want something to become what? Better, better than it was. Maybe you've been doing this through the quarantine or the lockdown. We've been doing it since we couldn't take our trips or take our vacations. Since you couldn't spend time on the beach, that's what we've been doing. We've been looking out the window and saying, ah, oh, we could fix that. And this would be better. We walk into this room and think this needs a little TLC. And so we've been taking those areas, a bed out front or a closet near our bedroom, and making it better. You do this with projects, don't you? Have you ever launched one of these and thought, you know, I hope when we're done, after the money we spend, this is worse? <laughs> no, no, no. You, you know what it will take to make it better. A fresh coat of paint, water it, dig a little deeper, fertilizer. All three of these leaders, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they're called by God to do a task. Same thing you've been called to, to do a task. Lead yourself, lead your kids, lead your company manage your home, move your finances forward, plan and dream, retire. They've been called to do a task, just like you. And now when they try to accomplish this task, the most incredible things unfold. And as they unfold for them, just like all of history, we learn something about ourselves and how to move forward. And they experienced some really, really amazing things. Some of them just will blow your mind, and some of them terribly tragic. And it will make sense to you. You will have experienced the very same things they've experienced. When you try to make something better, who knew that you would ever experience opposition from people in your own family, maybe, that you're supposed to be on the same page with? 
or I thought we in this organization really wanted to become more profitable, help more people, move things into a more success-oriented place, or the culture around this place really needs some attention, so we're going to work on it hard. And all these leaders, all three of them, try to do this, and I bet you have tried to do the very same thing. Now, when God calls Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah, he calls them to accomplish a certain task. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the stories of these three tasks. Zerubbabel is called by God to rebuild the altar in the temple, and he's the first one. He leads thousands back into the Holy Land. Ezra is called to build up the people of God, to remind the people of God that there is a law, there is a Torah, and God's called us to live according to it, so he builds up the people. And of course, maybe you might know the more popular of these three guys, Nehemiah. He's called to build up the city walls. Our story for today and the next few weeks is just to take a peek at the life of Zerubbabel and all the things that happened to him. Let's talk about him just a minute. Zerubbabel, his parents were part of the exile. His parents were born in Judea, near Jerusalem. They were Jewish. They had deep Hebrew roots. They were present when Nebuchadnezzar came. They were present when Jeremiah prophesied about the downfall of the nation. And Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered, destroyed Jerusalem, and took Zerubbabel's parents before he was born, and they took him off into exile. Now they're finding themselves living in a foreign country. Now, not all the Hebrews were enslaved. A lot of the Jewish men and women planted and lived and flourished in Babylon. This is just where God put them. Not everyone left. Not everyone was taken. Some were left in Jerusalem. While his parents were in Babylon, well, she became a child and she gave birth to little Zerubbabel. The name Zerubbabel means planted or created in Babylon. That's what it means. Now, I don't know what will happen in about, oh, anywhere from 9 to 12 months from now, but reports are we'll have a pretty good generation born. We've given different names to this generation, right? Maybe you've heard some of the names. Coronials, Quarantennials. It's just going to happen. I don't know what we would call Zerubbabel, uh, Exile-ennial. I don't know, but that's what he was. And, and this is why it matters. Zerubbabel's never been to Jerusalem. He's never seen the temple. He's never seen this promised land. He's born. His birth certificate says Babylon. He can't even put a native bumper sticker on his little chariot when he goes back home. This is Zerubbabel. And it's also most of the people that went back home 50 years into the exile this return happens most of the names that are listed they've never been there before they're learning a new thing going to a new place and what they're experiencing is incredibly challenging amazingly difficult building something they've never built before in a place they've never been before, experiencing a culture that God had intended for all Jewish men and women to be brought up under and experience as they're growing up. Now they're Babylonians and they're living in this new place, the Holy Land that God had set aside for them. It's incredibly difficult. The, the learning curve is very steep. 
Maybe you've noticed through the quarantine that you've tried to learn some new things and you found it difficult. Anybody experienced that? I got a guitar uh, about the time the quarantine kicked off. It was right after my surgery. And I would watch Josh up here play guitar and I would think, oh, I want to learn how to do that. That would be incredible. And I watched Josh play. Maybe you've watched him play. He's, he's just so talented. And he, his fingers move along the fretboard of this guitar and he doesn't even look where his fingers are going. He just knows where they go. And not only can he do that, he can sing while he does it. I can do a little bit of that, but I don't sing on key. Josh sings on key. It's a thing of beauty. And as he does it and he tells the story of, you know, how old he was, he got his first guitar, I think, oh, that's, I want to be able to do that. So during the quarantine, I thought, I'm going to try to learn something new. As it turns out, during new experiences, learning new things is immensely difficult. You remember the last time we were in a pandemic? Right, it's new. And so you're experiencing fears you've never had, anxieties you didn't know. And so when you find yourself trying to put your heart and mind to, maybe, making something better, improving a relationship that's gone through difficulty or pain, or maybe just trying to keep a hold on your anxiety or your anger or your temper, those things are incredibly difficult right now. This is exactly the way it was for the children of Israel when they find themselves going home to a place they've never been. Not all of them, but most of them were coming to a place that they'd never been before. Now, my guess is if you started reading any of Ezra, and I really want you to, you know, I dig in, you could read Ezra and Nehemiah in about a half hour. If you, even if you read slow like I read, you could probably read through the whole thing, maybe in an hour, all two books, the one volume in the Jewish literature. You probably started in chapter one and then quit after about verse seven or eight because you thought, this doesn't, I don't know, why, why would I read this? Because the most compelling beginning is not there. Here's the very first section. In fact, I just pulled a verse out of Ezra chapter one, verse nine. I mean, if you're gonna start a story and your goal is to hook people with the thickness of the plot, this is not the way to do it. We find verses like this. There's an actual inventory of the items that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem for his own, put in storage. And then when it came time to send the exiles home, King Cyrus of Persia went to that same place, pulled them out, gave them to the exiles and said, you know, put these on your camels and take them with you. These belong to the God of Israel and they're part of what belongs in the temple. And they give us a list. It's pretty specific this was the inventory. Gold dishes. How many? It's right there for you. You can say it. Right, 30. Silver dishes, just like your house. You have more silver than gold, don't you? Right? Silver pans, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, if you're not careful, you will open up some parts of Scripture, and you will think, I can't believe this is in there. I mean, doesn't it say in the Bible something about all Scripture being important? Doesn't it say that all scripture is God breathed? What in the world is this doing in Ezra chapter one? Don't push past it too quick. Don't move on. Take your time with it. Allow God's spirit to teach you. When the quarantine began to happen and the lockdown began to happen, and maybe you remember the first week of the, really the severity of it all when the NBA canceled everything. Do you remember that? When all of a sudden events and concerts were being canceled. We had had church the Sunday before and this room was filled and chairs were in the right places and we were acting like there wasn't really a virus going on. And then by Wednesday, we thought, I wonder when this is going to get really bad. And Thursday, we knew. And by Thursday afternoon, Josh and I are saying, I guess we're going to do church online. 
And we said, I don't know, what do you got? What do you have? What did we do? Well, we took inventory. It's the same thing that you do whenever you hit a crisis of any kind or a transition or a change or you're wondering, can we? What if we do? You ask the question, what do we have? What do we have? How can we use it? And you begin to ask and count and collect and gather and stack and put in places. So I said, Josh, what do you got? He said, I got a camera. Well, we're going to need a camera. And so Josh brought his camera from home. And we put it on a tripod, Steve Johnson's tripod, put it on three chairs because it wasn't tall enough so that we could have church in this room. The people that weren't here didn't even know that this room was not even suitable to have guests in it at the time. We had wires and cables running everywhere. The only place that looked suitable to be seen was the 10 square feet up here that you could see online. And we used Josh's camera for weeks until we began to replace piece by piece. We asked, what do you have? So what happens when you do that? Well, you begin to realize the same thing that the people of Israel and the Jewish exiles as they're going home realized. Listen close. We have everything that we need. Have you ever been in a spot where you didn't have what you need that God didn't eventually provide? We have everything that we need. Maybe God provides with something that is already in your house, in your cupboards, or hidden somewhere, covered by a blanket. You didn't even know you had it. Or maybe he provides what you need through a friend or a neighbor. Maybe he provides financially. Maybe he provides in a material way. Maybe he provides spiritually or emotionally. You already have everything that you need. Have you ever really been in want? Have you ever found yourself in a place asking God to provide and then he left you? alone, not being with you. When you realize you have what you need, what begins to bubble up is this sense of gratitude. When you read Ezra chapter one, one of the things that you ought to know is that this list of items God had preserved for decades for them to make their trip back home and rebuild the temple. We have everything that we need. If you made it through chapter one, I'm pretty sure you stopped at chapter two because it has another list. And again, you might have thought, A, I don't know these people. B, I can't say their names. So I'm out. There's a list of people that came back led by Jeshua and led by, led by a man that we've already discussed, Zerubbabel. And these are the clans or the families that came back. The descendants of Parosh, 2,172. And the list goes on and on and on. If you're so inclined, you can add them up and figure out exactly how many thousands of exiles came back on this first trip with Zerubbabel? But if the first question during a crisis you ask is, what do we have? Then the second question you ask is, who is with me? Who's going to travel with me? Who's going to be by my side? Who can I count on? Who can I lean on? Who can I trust? Who will pick up a shovel and move a brick and do the work with me. We found this out pretty quickly as we entered the lockdown, or maybe as you can think of another crisis that you went through and you figured out, oh, we have to move, or oh, we have to get this done, or we have to get this job accomplished before the rains come, or whatever it is. We got to plant the field, we got to do the harvest, you name it. Who is with me? And what you realize very quickly 
is that God, not only does he give you the items or the articles or the materials that you need, he gives you the people that you need. And he puts them beside you. And he allows you to know as you look around and you could think through any number of circumstances. Even as I look around the room, I think of the circumstances that we've all been through. I am not alone. I'm not. Not only is God with me, his promises, they don't ever leave me. But there are people are near me, there are people next to me that journey with me, locked arm and arm. If you made it through Ezra chapters 1 and chapters 2, then you would have got to the good stuff. When the seventh month came, after the Israelites had settled in their towns, so they came back to Jerusalem, and then they went to their hometowns. They all didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in little outposts like maybe some that you know of, in Bethlehem and Nazareth and Galilee, these regions that are out far from Jerusalem. When they had settled in their towns, then the people assembled together as what? As one in Jerusalem. They had a task to accomplish, and they're coming back. They all came back to the city after they had settled in their homes. Now, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah says that they came back as one. Now remember, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, they're all going to experience some incredible pieces of this journey. Some are incredible highs and some are unbelievable lows. They're going to experience opposition and we're going to find out that not everybody who calls themselves a Hebrew or a Jewish man or woman or chosen by God to be part of Israel as a nation considers themselves as one. But initially, they're together. And they're going to try to accomplish a task. And this is the task that they start with. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in, say it with me, rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. Now, to grasp this, put yourself in the middle of Jerusalem where the temple would be. Nebuchadnezzar had come in five, six decades before and destroyed the temple. It laid in ruins in a rubble, stone overturned, pile of bricks. In the middle of this temple would be the foundation of what was an altar. Now, you have to go back in your mind just a little bit to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and remember that God's presence had always been with his people. It was through the desert, pillar of fire and a cloud. It was a thousand different ways. Manna provided their sustenance every day that they wandered. They made it in the promised land. And eventually God says, I want you to build this place where my spirit will reside. I will come and I will meet with you in this place. Holy of holies specifically, but just beyond that is this altar. And this altar is a place where people came to worship. They came to offer sacrifices to God, give something to him. God gave us tangible and physical ways to express our love to him. And so the very first thing that Zerubbabel does as he leads these people is to say, before we move the temple, before we put the stones up, before we even clean up the site, let's go into the middle of the temple, this area, clear off this one piece of foundation, and let's begin to rebuild the altar of God. Why did they do that? Well, Ezra tells us, he says this, They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. This is all they wanted to do. 
Here's what Zerubbabel knew. Before we do anything that matters, before we get to work, before we have long days of sweat and toil and tiredness, before we lose sight of why God brought us out of exile all the way home, we have to get ourselves focused, centered. Let's remember not only why we're here, but who brought us here. Listen close. Let's remember not only why we're here, but who brought us here. The best way for you and I to maintain perspective in difficult times is worship. That's it, worship. I don't just mean the, the moments that we sing on Sunday morning, although I hope that's part of it. And I hope for some of you it is. I mean, it is for me. I love gathering with you. But it's a churchy word that needs maybe a broader definition. When is it for you when you become acutely aware that you are a small piece of a much bigger puzzle that something larger than you is orchestrating and blessing and loving and taking care of? When does that become obvious to you? Let me describe it a few different ways. When do you have this feeling, not only that you are accepted and loved and, and welcomed into this incredible global community we call Earth, but that you are provided for, that you are forgiven, that mercy, all that you need is yours, that you are small, but there is something bigger than you. When do you have that feeling? When do you have gratitude that just wells up and you don't even know why it's there or where it's come from? And it just comes out, maybe in tears or just a feeling of, of love and grace. That's worship. So let me ask you a little bit more about those feelings for you. Does it happen when you're with people or when you're alone? It's different for everybody. For some of you, when you're around other people, it's just too hard to kind of focus in on what's happening in the heavenlies above us, this understanding that God is sovereign, that he's mighty and powerful, that his love is overwhelming. It takes being alone for that to happen. But for some of you, your experience in community is so rich and meaningful that when you get around other believers or other people that kind of have their hearts heavenward, it draws you in the same direction. Which is it for you? It's important that you know. For some of you, it happens with uh, chords and lyrics and music. I mean, a certain song, worshipful or otherwise, can, can draw you into a place of, just understanding that God is sovereign, full surrender to him. Does that do it for you? I mean, I'm a music guy. I mean, love, 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 love music. And occasionally music can just kind of catch me up to the third heaven. You know what I mean? I mean, you just don't even know where you are. Has that ever happened to you? For some of you, it's not in a place or where there's a sound system or even speakers or anything plugged into your ears. It's, it's when you're out in nature. 
you can be someplace and maybe catch the, the silhouette of Pikes Peak against, against the sky and something happens in your heart and you begin to experience really it's nothing but worship but we could just call it awe or inspired or humility is another word for it. Where and when does it happen for you? Are you distracted by the headlines? Have you forgotten who's in charge? Are you aware of the depth and the breadth of God's sovereignty? Worship is what resets that for us. Worship is what brings you back to sort of a baseline of understanding. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know how things are going to unfold. Another lockdown. When's the vaccine coming? Who's going to get elected? All of these questions about the future, we have no idea. But I tell you what pales in comparison to all of those questions. It's the sovereignty of God leading us forward. His promises are true. And hope is assurance of the things we have not yet seen. Nothing does that like worship does. And that's what Zerubbabel knows. Zerubbabel's led by God to lead these people back. And he knows their task is going to be massive. It's going to take a long time to rebuild the temple. They're going to lose sight of what's important. They're going to be opposed by all kinds of people. And so they offer burnt offerings. Here's what's unique about burnt offerings. I mean, they offer these every day. Eventually, they're at the altar before the temple's rebuilt. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They go through all these worship procedures. What's unique about a burnt offering on an altar? Normally, when a disciple, somebody, a Hebrew nation, were to bring in a, uh, an offering to the altar of God at the temple, the priest would get a little bit excited. I mean, let's be honest. The priest is going to think, this is going to be good. I'm going to get me some of that. That's what the priest is thinking. Because the offering would be made and a little bit be set aside and the priest could take some. Even the person doing the offering is a little bit jazzed about it because they get to take some and maybe eat a little bit themselves as well. I mean, they're bringing the best that they have that they get to share and it seems, seems right. A burnt offering is different. A burnt offering goes on the altar and all of it goes to God. Nothing is left. Nothing's left for the priest. He gets zilch. Nothing's left for the offerer. He gets nothing. God gets all of it. And they begin to do this. In fact, it's the only offering that's mentioned early in the book of Ezra is the burnt offering. It's the closest thing that we have to worship. When you worship, when you give God the adulation, the acknowledgement that he deserves as creator, as lover of your soul, as redeemer of your life, all you get in return, surrender, humility, perspective, peace, nothing physical or tangible to take with you, just the correct posture of your heart when you walk away. It's a burnt offering. You can't really read about the burnt offerings in the Old Testament and the totality of them without thinking about the cross. The cross is the foreshadowing of Deuteronomy and Leviticus that describes the burnt offering. When Jesus came to the cross, he didn't just give a portion of himself. He gave all of himself. Here's what he says in John chapter 6. 
Jesus says, say it with me, I am the bread of life. It's beautiful. Jesus uses these simple pictures to describe his sacrifice. And then he says this. I love the pointedness of this statement. Your ancestors ate man in the wilderness, and yet they died. All of them. They ate what God had provided. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, speaking of himself, which anyone may eat and what? Not die. This is the hope. The hope that Jesus gives to me and to you. This is a promise yet fulfilled, yet to be fulfilled. And then he says this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And so as we prepare to take communion as a church body, we're reminded that Jesus in John 6 was describing his physical body and the spiritual implications of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so the sacrament of communion helps us to remember, and it puts our hearts in minds of hope, assurance of things that we have not yet seen. And so he held up the bread and said, this is my body, it's been broken for you. And the disciples, same as us today, would see the bread physically torn. The next day they would see Jesus' body physically torn. And then Jesus would hold up a cup It would be the cup that he referred to in the Garden of Gethsemane that it would pass from him. But he knows that this is his destiny and the goal of his life. And he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, when we partake in this symbolic meal, we do so so that we can remember three things. The past, our sins are forgiven. The present, we live with God's presence in this place and in us because of this restoration and the future, the hope that is to come, Jesus said, I will not have this meal again until my kingdom is fully here and then we'll gather together. So we gather together as one body, those of us in this room and those of us that are online. As the people at home gather their elements, you have some elements in front of you. And in case there's not some, Cindy will make her way through the room and and give it to those folks that are either on front row or uh, have some missing. But the little element in front of you, the little top peels back, and you'll find a representation of the body of Jesus, bread, the simplest of elements. Then there's another layer to peel back in just a moment, and you'll find the juice. We'll gather in this moment to take communion while those online take it as well. And then we'll sing a few lyrics to help us walk out with the hope that God has promised. Lord, as we take communion now, we ask that you would allow the presence of your love and your mercy to fully inhabit the sacrament. And we ask that as we remember, we will also look forward with the hope, knowing that new life comes from you and you alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.